The scripture reading is from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 21. So I invite your uh, reverent hearing of God's word and hearing in faith. From Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's so good to be back among you after three weeks of my family and I being away. Um, thank you for your prayers for our children, and they're all doing well. And Donnie and I never uh, were ill. We're thankful for that. But you know how you have to kind of uh, quarantine yourselves, as we're all very accustomed to these days. So we're past it all now, and with greater um, enthusiasm for the new year than ever, we move forward in the work of the Lord. Well, I wanted to uh, speak this morning about... Uh, Two Covenant Heads, a theme that we in a Reformed church like Grace Bible Church are familiar with, uh, Adam and Christ in both their actions and their results. Um, and though you're familiar with the doctrine, I wanted to bring out some things that I hope will enhance and fortify your understanding of our two covenant heads, Adam and Christ. And I'll use uh, Westminster Larger Catechism as a reference at many points this morning because as a summary of what the Bible teaches on these matters, there are no greater statements uh, written among men. Romans, uh, up to this point, up to where we are in chapter 5, um, can be summarized somewhat uh, by verse 1 of chapter 5, where Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to summarize such magnificent chapters that lead up to here, but in short, I can say this, that Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, has brought all men under the condemnation of sin. 
and under the guilt of sin and under the wrath of God. Whether Jew, Gentile, man or woman, bond or free, all, says Paul, are under the judicial wrath of the judge of heaven. And so we ask the question, well, how may we escape? And of course, everything that man might invent or come up with in his own mind, in his own way of thinking to escape this great wrath of God falls very short. Different forms of religion, different forms of self-help, different ways of, of, uh, of mitigating the, the true wrath and guilt and, and assuaging it by saying, well, you know, we're not really that bad, we're, we're really okay if we do certain things, or, or building our own formulas. Let me see, what would Ron's formula for eternal life be? Well, I think we ought to do these things, and if you meet these standards, then you'll have eternal life, you'll have peace with God. None of these things, none of these things whatsoever begin to bring us close to the God whom we have offended by the fall of our parents and by our own sin and our own guilt. Like the hymn that we just sung, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? The only answer, as given in the first four chapters of Romans and in chapter 5 and, as, and looking beyond, as you know, is look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Only through the merits, the death, and the burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ may we be free and out from under the wrath of God. So that's a very quick and broad summary of Romans up to this point. But in verse 14, you'll notice as we come to the text that we're focusing on today, that we see Adam is said in verse 14 to be a type of Christ by position and pattern and performance. Adam is the type, of course, and Christ is the fulfillment. Notice verse 14, it says at the very end of the verse, speaking of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The him is, of course, Jesus Christ. So typology is introduced here into Paul's argument, reinforcing what we're going to look at this morning, the universality of sin through Adam to all of us. And then more than that, though, reemphasizing the greatness of the grace of God to reconcile sinners through the last Adam, and that is Jesus Christ. The, uh, Adam is the first man from earth. Christ is the first man from heaven. Each is our representative. We are after the likeness of our representative head, first in Adam, and then secondarily, we have, have believed in Christ in our heavenly uh, head, and that is Christ, the man from heaven. Now, to bring this contrast to a little clearer point, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul again argues when he's um, uh, dealing with a resurrection here, but he brings this point out a little bit further of the comparison of the two representative heads. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 45 to 49. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. 
So especially there in verses 45 uh, and 48, it's brought out that the first man is became a living soul, but the last man is a life-giving spirit. So there is first man and the last man, and there is also the earthly man, and there is the heavenly man. So each man represents the human race in respect to their obedience toward God. And so the two basic divisions this morning of what we're going to look at very simply are these. In Adam, there is sin and death, but more so in Christ, there is righteousness and life. And so the whole, uh, back in Romans 5 from verses 12 to 21, the whole section here is a comparison showing Christ uh, being so much the more abundant in grace and, um, and, and bringing to us that which uh, only he could do as the man from heaven. And so I'll present all this as a comparison to you this morning. So first of all, in Adam, there's sin and death. Notice, first of all, that covenant uh, disobedience entered into the world. In the garden, as you know, God made uh, entered into covenant with Adam. And while we won't take the time to look at the Genesis account, there were terms of the covenant set, and God made it very clear to Adam what would be upon his obedience to that covenant, which would be life eternal, not only for him, but for all those whom he represented, all of us. And if he broke the covenant with God, there would be death, both physical, which was certainly a result, but more so the spiritual death, the separation from God, from his fellowship and from his favor that was to come if Adam were to break the covenant which Adam did. And so there was covenant disobedience which entered into the human family. Look again at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Through one man, it says. Now, it's interesting that it wasn't through Eve that sin entered into the world. Eve sinned first, as you recall, but she did not represent the human family. She was not our covenant head. For God had made the covenant with Adam and, and by, as a byproduct with Eve as well, but, but Adam was the covenant head, and so it's through the one man and his failure that sin enters into the human family. Now, sin had previously, to the fall of Adam, entered into the sphere of angels, as we know, and we won't go into that either, but Satan came and he tempted Eve, and she took of the fruit and she gave to her husband, and he ate. But it was through the, through the disobedience, the covenant disobedience of Adam, that it says here in verse 12, through that one man, that sin entered into the world. You say, well, my, one man acting on his own and his own will back then affects all of us without exception? And the answer from the Bible is, yes, it does. It affects us all without exception because we were in Adam. He is our head and what the head does, or so goes the head, so goes the people, as goes the head, excuse me, so go the people. And what he did, we did in him in that sense. God did what we call imputation. God imputed the disobedience of Adam's one act at that one time so far in, in our past to us. He counted it and put it to our account. He said, well, I don't like that. I, 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 don't, I don't like the fact that somebody else you know, has passed this sin and this death and the separation and wrath of God onto me. I don't like the innocent suffering for the guilty. Well, my friends, if you don't like the idea of the innocent suffering for the guilty, then your Christian faith is going to be in vain because is it not but Christ, the innocent, suffering for the guilty? 
Is it not he who did not deserve nor commit any acts, did not deserve the wrath of God nor commit any acts of sin, bearing by the imputation of God the Father all of the guilt and the wrath that our sin deserved and carrying it on his own shoulders to the cross? We won't go into that any farther, but sin entered through the one man. Now let me read you just very quickly from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It says, um, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? Great question, is it not? The answer, the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Very well answered there, as we know. So covenant disobedience entered, and as a result, death passed as a divine sentence to all mankind. Notice the last part of verse 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned at that time in Adam. Now that's the, that's the focus of the verse here. It doesn't mean, though it's true, that we all sin, and therefore we're guilty uh, before God, because that's certainly true of every child of Adam. We all sin and are personally guilty. But it's not pointing to that. It's pointing to the one act of covenant disobedience from Adam and that in that act, we all sinned because we sinned in him. It is the disobedience of Adam applied to our accounts, counted to be for us as his, Adam's children and descendants, that when our representative head failed before God, we failed before God. When he died to fellowship and, and uh, covenant with God, we also died to fellowship and covenant with God. This was a, a death sentence of divine judgment and condemnation. Notice the language there. And, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I want to read again from the Westminster Larger Catechism and and this was originally a, a lesson that I taught to an adult Sunday school class, so you could understand a uh, little bit different format than a typical uh, message might be. But it says this, question, wherein consisteth, consisteth the sinfulness of the estate whereunto man fell? Here's the answer. The sinfulness of that estate whereunto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of that righteous, righteousness wherein he was created, that in whereas Adam was created, the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which to proceed all actual transgressions. So it's really a matter of our nature. And it's not simply, verse 12 is not saying all sinned uh, individually, but we sinned in our covenant head, Adam, our representative. Judgment arose from one transgression. It resulted in condemnation for all. Notice verse 16, just uh, jumping down to it for a moment, where it says in the middle of the verse, uh, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. The result was that a death sentence from God passed onto all mankind. Dark is a stain that we cannot hide. Uh, and, when, and that's what Romans up to this point will help us to do, is to corner ourselves into thinking there's any way outside of Christ, any way whatsoever, which there is not. So we ask the question, how might I be justified? 
before God? How might I be clean before a holy judge? And the answer is, of course, only in Christ. So the covenant disobedience entered the world and a divine death sentence was given to all mankind. But thirdly, death was reigning over us as a tyrant. We find this in verse number 14, and I want you to pay close attention to the language here. All right, let me read verse 13. For until the law, uh, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is the type of him who is to come. Now, death is reigning as a tyrant over us. Now, verse 13 tells us until the law came, which was through Moses, that, that sin was already in the world. But the difference is that that particular offenses which the law stated and, and which we recognize now as our own disobedience and our own failings and our own uh, liability of guilt before God, when none of the law was given to mankind, mankind was still, were still considered sinners before God. They were still sinning. But the particular uh, commands and the particular prohibitions that the law brings out and expresses were not counted against those who never knew the law. But they were, then were they not sinners? Well, that's the argument. Of course they were sinners because he goes on and says in verse number 14, even though there was no law, no particular list of things that, that aggravated man's sin, that pointed to man's sinfulness, that showed man just how sinful he was, nevertheless, death was reigning from the time from Adam to Moses. Death was dominating every human being, even those that had never heard uh, the, the specific commands of, of God, those who had not entered into any particular covenant with God like Adam had. Death was dominating them. Death was ruling as a king over them. Death held the axe uh, over their necks as they were bowed down, if you will. Well, how could death be ruling over those who were not guilty? Well, that's the whole point of the passage, is it not? They were guilty. We are guilty. Because death was reigning as a tyrant over us, as a king. It was dominating and ruling every person, as it does today even outside of Christ. It proves that the universality of sin is in us from our conception onward. <laughs> right? Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was... I was shaped and conceived in iniquity, and, and you know, my, my mother brought me forth even in a sinful condition into this world, even before I had done any good or evil personally, I was brought in as a sinner under the wrath of God. Death is our enemy, the Bible says. Over and over, death is known that not only our enemy, but an enemy which Christ, our great King, has conquered. Again, forgive me for referring to it so often, but I think it's fitting to refer to the Westminster Larger Catechism and read this question, what are the punishments of sin in this world? Here's the answer. The punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of the mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward, as the curse of God upon the creatures uh, for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, states, relations, and employments together with death itself. You know, they didn't pull any punches, did they, when they were writing? Oh, for today that we might also understand the Bible to such a degree that we would stop trying to soften what God has put a point on. 
We would stop trying to bury the truth that God is trying to raise up in Revelation for us to see because we need to face the reality of who we are in Adam. We need to confront our sin in all of its ugliness. We need to confront the seriousness of the wrath of God hanging over the heads of sinners because of Adam and because of our personal guilt and transgressions. Because only then will we flee to the answer that God has provided. The answer who is Jesus Christ, the final Adam, the covenant head who did not fail. Well, Paul says in verses 13 and 14 that sin didn't begin with the Ten Commandments when they were given. His meaning really in those verses is to just show, as I've said, that the violation of the prohibitions and express commands of the law were not counted against those who never knew them. But death was reigning nevertheless over those who lived prior to the law, even over those who did not sin after the form of Adam's transgression, they were counted as guilty and under the wrath of God. Now, as far as our nature is concerned, again, if you, if you know the Reformed faith well, this is nothing new to you. We're not sinners because we sin in the strictest sense. <laughs> we sin because we're sinners, right? It gets to the nature of who we are. It gets to the core of the issue. And it turns it back around in a way that the Bible turns it around and helps us again to look in the mirror of reality, the mirror of God's Word, and face who we are in Adam and who we are because of our own personal guilt. Why did the law come then, the question might be asked. Well, the law came according to verse uh, 20, and we'll look at it briefly in just a little bit, but it came in that the transgressions might increase. In other words, because man had lost all ability for good and righteousness and fell with uh, uh, ability to fellowship with God from the inside, as Adam was originally created, God placed the Ten Commandments written in stone outside of him that, he, that we must, as a, as a race of people, face. Here it is in front of me. I cannot deny it. It condemns. It convicts. It, it punishes because this is me and I cannot get away from it. It aggravated the sinfulness of sin in us. Brought about an awareness that we're not able to keep God's law as a measure of righteousness. Back when, when we were first going through the study of Romans in, um, in the adult Sunday school class, Jay mentioned a phrase uh, originally by Augustine, I believe. The phrase is non posse, non pecare. It's a Latin meaning that we, after the fall, are not able not to sin. And that's the reality that we have to face. No matter how much good you might think of yourself or how much good you might think is in the human race or whatever uh, man's conception of the human nature is, the biblical facts are that after the fall, we lost all ability to will any good toward God. And we now are in the, con on the, in the uh, condition of not able not to sin. We always like to think the best of ourselves. I love you people, and I think the best of you. Certainly, I think the best of you in Christ. But I know this about you because I know this about me. Even in a condition of redeemed, I am still in my past a man who is not able not to sin. And I must face that. Now, as we're going to talk about in a moment, there's a very great difference for those who have been born again and who have been given the Holy Spirit. It's a change of condition. We'll talk about that in a moment. But after the fall, humanity has lost all of the original liberty where Adam had the ability to choose not to sin. He could freely chosen to obey all God's covenant, and he would have lived forever, and so would we. 
Well, for time's sake, I move to the second and really what the passage is all about, second covenant head, and that is Christ. Where in Adam there is death, in Christ there is righteousness and life. Christ is a central focus of chapter 5, and especially the verses that we're looking at, 12 to 21. So where in Adam covenant uh, disobedience entered, in Christ, the new Adam, the final Adam, covenant obedience enters. Notice this in verse 15. But the gift, the free gift it is, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. With the coming of Messiah into the world, so entered the remedy to the ruin of mankind. His perfect and meritorious obedience to God brought both, uh, in his both living and dying, brought to us a place where we are not only forgiven for our original sin in Adam, but we are brought to the greater place of fellowship with God. Where we were, the fellowship was broken in Adam. We were not able to commune with God. We were under the wrath of God. Now Christ, as the second Adam, enters in and he obeys all that God commanded him to do. Lo, I've come to do thy will. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. The sacrifices and the offerings were, were the picture of what Christ would do, but they could take away no sins. The blood of the animals shed over and over and over thousands of times never took the guilt and the sin away from mankind. But what did Jesus say? I come to do thy will. And he is the Lamb of God which takes away once and for all the sins of the world. And in our place, he died, and his righteousness is imputed to those who believe. Now notice verse 15 tells us something about the comparison. We're comparing the covenant head who is Adam to the covenant head who is Christ. But something very different is going on here. Verse 15, because it says the free gift is not like that of the transgression. And then it says again in verse 16, and the gift is not like. So the, the uh, pattern of actions and results is kept in this text, but the results are opposite and greater. Because not like what Adam happened with Adam, God said, you do this and you'll die. Adam did that and God brought the exact judgment that he said and Adam died. But much more in our covenant head who is Christ in his act of covenant obedience, has not only taken the wrath of God in our behalf and removed it from us as far as the east is from the west, but he has also begun in us now and will continue through all eternity to bless us with fellowship and nearness to God to apply all of his righteousness to our account. And we are accepted in him who is our covenant head. The superabundant grace of God in Christ is not only flowing to us today as we have believed in Christ, but it will flow to us for all eternity, age after age after age. Look in verse 17, For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. But notice the language, much more, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Adam brought death, and we died in Adam. But Christ brings life 
And we not only are brought out from under the wrath of God, but we are given His righteousness. We are given His holiness. We are given His uh, love from the Father. And we are given eternal life. Life without end. And we live and move and have our being in Him. Earlier in the book, as you know, uh, in, in Romans, it talks about having uh, justification only through Christ, only by grace, and only through faith in Christ. And so it brings us to the second part. Not only was covenant obedience, uh, did it enter through Messiah, but life as a divine sentence passed to all the elect. Now where death passed to all of Adam's descendants because of his fall, now all of those in Christ have a divine declaration of life pronounced over them. <laughs> Folks, this is great, great news. God, the judge, has put over the top of your head a sentence, and that sentence in Christ is life. Life, life, life for you. Believe in Christ and you'll know eternal life. Believe in the merits of Christ imputed to your account for His sake and for His work. By believing in Him, by having faith in all that He did and trusting only in Him, God places life over you and death can no longer touch you. You know, we, I don't know how you feel about these, about these uh, movies, but my, my wife and I recently, during our quarantine, watched all the Star Wars movies in, in sequence, right? Chronological sequence. And yeah, in some ways it's a real waste of time, but uh, it, it has some <laughs> lessons that can be drawn, you know, because of all of the false uh, religious ideas that are in it. We're, you know, picking the poor movies apart, you know. But anyway, you know, think of it in a sense as, 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 as a shield over you. God has placed a shield over you. Life. The words life, the life of Christ, the life of the Spirit, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and, and the fiery arrows of the devil cannot get to you. The death that so surrounds us and reminds us of its presence so often cannot get to us any longer in the, in the greatest sense because we're free from it, free from its bonds. We're, we're no longer not able not to sin, but now through the Spirit's indwelling, we're able not to sin. Imperfectly in this life, yes, but the power of God and the presence of God gives us the ability to choose righteousness and choose life because that's what God has made us to be. Over the top of us, all around us, surrounding our lives is life from the divine sentence that God has placed upon all of the elect. God passed a sentence of justification upon all of those who believe because of Christ. Look in Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 for just a moment. Paul begins this letter and kind of gives the fruit, kind of the, you know, the nutshell versions of what he would be expounding on later in the letter. But he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of man because we've already established that we have none. No matter what we do or could do, we are not righteous before God. But God has revealed His own righteousness in the righteous Christ who has come, the obedient servant who has come, and He has imputed that righteousness to us. That's the righteousness which God provides. 
the righteousness of God. From faith to faith, because the just man or anyone who would believe unto life eternal lives by faith. So Christ obeyed the covenant and life passed as a sentence to all the elect. And now life reigns as a king over us. Verse 17, in contrast to Adam, says, For by the transgression of the one, death reigned, death ruled as an evil tyrant over us through the one. But now notice, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace. Notice you receive it. You don't earn it, but you receive it. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, they will do what? Reign in life through the one. Where there was death before, now life is our king. Christ is the king of life. God is the God of the living. And so Christ reigns over us and rules over us, and therefore life is now what we are about. Life is the rule for us. Life is our nature now. We have new life through the new birth, spiritual life, moral life, ethical life is expressed in God's holy word. These things now dominate and rule over our lives. And they prove that in by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit that we have been accepted in the beloved one the justification of the elect by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One more place before we kind of bring it all to a summary. Look in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, if you would. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, Notice this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's in Christ. But because of Christ and His obedience, we have been blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You know, sometimes in our weakness we think, well, if I only had power to do this, if I only had faith to do that, if God had only given me this, listen, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. He left us lacking nothing. What we're to do is understand that life is the king who dominates and reigns over us now. In Christ, we've been given everything necessary. We're to move out in faith. We're to be like Abraham. We're to be like Moses. We're to be like Noah. We're to be like Daniel. They didn't have something that you don't have in Christ. They just moved out in it in faith. They acted upon it as we're to act upon it, following their example. They were given every spiritual blessing in Christ who was to come, and we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ who has come. We just need to learn by faith, to move out in it, to act like it, to think like it. My problem is when I'm defeated is not that Christ hasn't given me the necessary tools. It's that I'm not using what He gave me. <laughs> He's given me the spiritual armor, but I leave it laying on the ground. He's given me His Word, and yet I walk around in ignorance when the light of the revelation is right before me. He's given me power to move mountains. In a spiritual sense, and yet I, oh God, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> no, we can. If God wills it, we can. What did Paul say? I can do how many things? All things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Now, it doesn't mean you can do everything your sinful flesh desires to do. It doesn't mean you can do it to consume it upon your lust, like I can, like the health wealth gospel would try to teach us, which is simply is not true. But I can do all the things that God wills for me to do. All things that bring glory and honor to God. All things that help me to grow in my faith. Help me to learn the Word of God. Help me to give testimony to that faith to other people. To make a difference in this world for me and my family and those that I come into contact with. If I believe that Christ is my King and life is ruling over me because of God, then I know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, in summary kind of like Paul does in verses 18 to 21. I won't recite the verses for you, but he again kind of in bullet fashion shows Adam and the result and Christ and the result. And so let me just give it to you here in summary. In Adam, one transgression resulted in the condemnation of all mankind. In Adam, one disobedient act made all of us sinners. In Adam, sin was passed as a death sentence to all mankind and ruled over us as an evil tyrant. But now, much more, much more abundant, much greater. In Christ, the final Adam, one righteous act equals justification for all those who believe. One man's obedience made many righteous, the Bible says. And grace now reigns in us and over us, resulting in eternal life. Well, although the law magnified our sinfulness, where sin abounded, verse 20 says, grace so much more abounded. Finally, we read verse 21, and I'll close. That is, as sin reigned in death, and it certainly does, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace now rules over our lives through imputed righteousness resulting in eternal life. And all of that, all of that, only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise His holy name for the abundance of His gift, the final Adam. So who represents you this morning would be the question that I would ask. You're represented by the one for sure. <laughs> represented by Adam, but will that be the final say? It's been said that in Adam we die twice, spiritually as we died to God, but we'll also die the second death. But in Christ, we only die once in that sense, and that's the spiritual death that has passed to all of us. But Jesus came along and He said in Him, Death no longer has dominion over you. If you believe in me, you live. You live. Why? The second death has no power over you because you've been given life and that eternally through Jesus Christ. So I pray that you be represented by the final Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if not represented by that covenant head, you will surely pay the price of the first covenant head, and that is wrath forevermore. I pray that you would flee from that wrath to come and find the second Adam sufficient in every way to bring you to God. And may he be praised forever.
We have an opportunity this morning, and I'm so thankful um, that we can come to the Lord's table. And it represents in so many ways the very things we've been speaking about this morning, the blessings and the benefits of our communion with and fellowship with Christ. I want you to know uh, prior to saying anything else that all these elements were prepared by me that, that are down front, and I use the caution of both mask and gloves in preparing these these elements for you. But the communion speaks um, of our fellowship with Christ, and that's something that was broken in the first covenant head. We lost all ability to commune with our Heavenly Father, but Christ has come and He's restored that communion, not only restored it, but invites us to come to this covenant meal. The, the table or the, uh, the supper of the Lord invites the idea of both host and hospitality because we come to receive the blessing of all that God has provided for us. And again, not because we're worthy, because we are unworthy, but because we acknowledge the grace of God through Christ to care for us and to draw us near to God in faith and to preserve us and to bless us with all the blessings needed in this life until the heavenly kingdom comes. And we partake of this grace because we need Him. We need Him to nourish us and sustain us in our spiritual journey. This is our covenantal meal. Christ is our covenantal head, and this is our covenantal meal. It celebrates that which He has already done, which He's doing now, and which He will do for our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, the Apostle Paul enjoins us to examine ourselves to see whether we might appropriately take the table of the Lord it involves proper discernment of these elements when they represent the sacrifice of Christ. And so we ought to enter into this meal with great reverence and care. And we should come to the elements in faith and in repentance and in humility. And the Heidelberg Catechism um, has question 81 to help us along these lines, to help us to think through it. The question is, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And the answer is this, for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for Christ's sake, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more and more holy. Again, Westminster's Shorter Catechism, question 97, asks this, Well, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, uh, of their faith to feed upon Him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Just one place in the Scripture I'll read to you as a text this morning before we receive the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so I invite you to this table this morning. And this service is open to all who confess Christ and who are 
uh, have been baptized and who are not living in any known sin for which they are unrepentant. So it's the table of the Lord that we offer here this morning, not the table of Grace Bible Church. So if you're here as a guest and um, you would come uh, in light of your discernment of the Lord's body, we invite you to, to come and join with us. As you come and take these symbols that are down here in front of our faith and fellowship, I invite you to engage the Lord in private prayer and confession, thanksgiving, certainly in celebration, though, of what Christ has done for us, the life, the liberty in Christ, the joy of our salvation that He has brought to us. Uh, I invite you to celebrate that in the grace of the Lord to, to all of us. And so, um, as we, I'll pray for us in a moment and I'll come down and prepare the elements. And I'll just invite you to form a couple of lines and come down and, and uh, receive uh, the communion. And, and you can go back to your chairs and um, back to your places where you are and give thanks to the Lord for His great provision. Well, join me in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank You for our forgiveness and for the grace that keeps us safe in this world. Bless us individually, bless us corporately as a body of Christ in this place as we partake these elements to signify that we are yours. Make us full this morning that we may go away strengthened all the more to live for you and for your kingdom, to make a difference in our own generation by moving out in the faith and the power that you have given to every one of your dear children. We so thank you for the free and the full pardon of our sins. Lord, may our minds be saturated with it. Yes, ruined in our first covenant head, but made alive forevermore in the final Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Praise be the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What a blessing. What a bright and shining light is the favor of the Lord upon His people as we commune with Him this morning. Well, let's pray and we will be dismissed. Well, Father in heaven, great is our joy as Your people this morning to fellowship with You spiritually, to receive the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice given for us, the innocent for the guilty, the one for the many. We enter into this nourishment which has been given to us, who is Christ, our life, in the great anticipation of the future day, and may it be soon, when He shall return again for His beloved bride. We shall be without spot or blemish in Your presence, and that You may again drink of the fruit of the vine in fellowship with the great supper of that great day. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.